Well, thank you very much for coming. Um, basically, what brings me here is to uh, to acquaint you all with some of the developments in Indian politics recently and try to place it in some kind of perspective. And uh, because those who are familiar with or who follow Indian politics will, I'm sure, be aware that there is a rather critical situation and many people are very perturbed about it. And on the other hand, many people are very jubilant and they feel that this is a new awakening and uh, India is resurgent and it's a new glorious beginning, etc., etc. So there are very sharply divided opinions about what is taking place in India. And uh, I have been a political activist for the better part of 50 years more than 45 years and myself was involved in an extremist movement and that is why um, through a long process uh, of thought and activity I came to realize that um, various types of extremisms are actually reducing the space even for a dialogue and a conversation. The result is that we are now faced in a with a situation where extremism is become the norm. In fact, one of the categories that I'm trying to use with regard to what's happening in India is mainstream extremism. That is to say, extremism doesn't merely emanate from the from isolated sectors of the polity or from the margins, but on the other hand, it seems to have become the norm. Moreover, this is clouded, this is also affected by the fact that there is a great deal of violence and intimidation and uh, there have been many, many violent uh, campaigns, there has been, in fact, genocidal activities have taken place in India. So all this is a matter of grave concern to me as a politically active person. And um, I can tell you, I will share with you some of my own experiences. Um, but um, of late, just the immediate peg for this is that just on October the 31st and the first few days of November, it was the 30th anniversary of the assassination of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi and the violence that took place after. And I was uh, motivated to write a piece, a little kind of memoir and a meditation on it recently in the Economic and Political Weekly. Those of you who are familiar with Indian uh, Indian uh, uh, political thought will know that we'll have heard of the EPW, the Economic and Political Weekly. It has a lot of um, material, it's been there for half a century or more. Um, they asked me to write a, a special piece uh, on the 30th anniversary and uh, actually I recollect that they had asked me to write for the 20th anniversary and, and I had to, uh, refused. And this time I felt uh, constrained to write it because I feel that many people of your generation or people even who are in their 30s have no knowledge of what took place in 1984. And perhaps they don't understand the complexity and the ramifications of that. And I think it's a very grave issue. And moreover, you'll find that in Indian political discourse, People who are aware of what happened in 2002, that is a pogrom that took place in Gujarat, where many thousands of Muslims were killed, uh, they, uh, they do not have that much of a recollection of what took place before that in, the, in, in, in 1984. 
and this has become like a piece of political ping pong in Indian political discourse where anybody who objects to or points out what happened under Narendra Modi's regime in Gujarat is uh, faced with the query, what about 1984? You know, it happened in 1984, so it almost sounds like some kind of justification, you know, uh, and it deadens the, the, the debate about the significance of these things. It's almost as if one massacre deserves another. One party presided over one massacre, so nobody should object if the other party presides over another one. So um, it's become very confusing. And uh, this is why I thought I would write this. And uh, if you, if, if some of you are interested enough, I, I would request you to read uh, that article of mine. It's available on the web quite easily. It's called The Broken Middle. And it's about um, Indian politics and the significance of 1984. Now, um, there are many things that can be said about it, but what I want to focus on is uh, contained in the title of what I had written, The Broken Middle. What I am saying is that the middle ground of Indian politics has been broken. It's been broken institutionally, it's been broken ideologically. And what exactly do we mean by that? Um, I'll just bring out some facts to show, for instance, that in 1984, soon after the events of 1984, there was uh, a general election. Soon after the massacre in 2002, there was a state election. In short, the, the commanders of state power, they used the climate of communal hatred uh, to win an election. And uh, Rajiv Gandhi won the election, uh, the, the Congress party rather, which had presided over the, over the pogrom in, in Delhi. They held an election and won an unprecedented majority in the, in the national parliament, well over 400 seats. What is actually also perhaps even more significant is that the party which is now the ruling party, the BJP, in the 1984 election got two seats. Two. Today they've got you know, over 280. They had two seats in the 1984 parliament. So this is a very significant fact because it's not simply a matter of organizational growth or something like that, not at all. It's because the people who normally would have voted for the BJP ended up voting for the Congress. So the point I'm making is that communalism is not to be associated first and foremost with organizations. It's an ideology. It's a way of thinking. It's a mood. It's an approach to politics. And that is what we have to grapple with before we start going into organizational affiliation. In short, I mean, if you look at Germany in the 1930s, it did not matter whether somebody was or was not a member of the Nazi party. If they shared a certain sentiment about nationalism, about glorious Germany, about Jews and how they have to be you know, removed, etc., etc., then uh, that was sufficient to make them vote for the Nazi party. They may not have been members. So the point is to understand the ideology before we start focusing on, on, on organizations. And that's what brings me to the, the, uh, the real, the, the meat of the matter, which is that we have had in South Asia a kind of blight of communal politics, and we're still grappling with it. 
and this communal politics is fundamentally fascistic in orientation. That's what I have been arguing since 1984. When I first put forward this argument in, 19, in 1985, I wrote my first paper on communalism. And it was uh, roundly criticized by my leftist friends for being Hegelian in nature because I was focusing on the ideas. This is all Hegelian, you see. I was not focusing on the parties. Uh, I find it very interesting and I made, a, I made a very systematic analysis. Now you can disagree with it and the paper is available. That's also on the net. I put all this stuff on the net. Um, uh, I, I argued that there are several reasons why this kind of ideology is India's version of Nazism. You know, it focuses on a community as being the source of all the ills of society. It has a certain notion of, of history in which history is just a long story of communities fighting with one another. It's a story of warfare and heroism. You know, it's a kind of very heavily, uh, uh, vi uh, heavily virile story of the past, you know, where heroes are battling with one another. It's a phenomenon in which hooliganism gets conjoined with politics. It's a phenomenon wherein a great deal of, of, uh, of uh, insignificance is placed on violently suppressing one's enemy. It scapegoats communities as a simplistic way of understanding social problems, etc., etc. The same things that you can find uh, in, in, a, in a study of, of uh, fascism in the, in the 1930s in Europe, you can find those same phenomena operating in India. Secondly, the most important thing about this is that in India, the success of this, this kind of approach uh, is hinges around the fact that nobody even attempts to understand it except in the same language of communism. So we understand communism through communal language. As a result, we don't understand it at all. If you start to try to understand capitalism by saying, I will first analyze American capitalism, then I will analyze Japanese capitalism, and for the and then I will understand you know Chinese capitalism. Then you won't. Then there's no point using a, a term such as capitalism at all. You first have to be clear what capitalism is, what the object is that you're studying, and then make the distinctions. But in India, what we do is we start by subdividing communism into Hindu, Hindu fanaticism or Muslim sectarianism or Sikh fanaticism, etc., and then say that communism is an arithmetical total of all these phenomena, which it is not. There is something generic about it. And what is generic, it is basically, it's a militarist ideology. It's an ideology which, which uh, aims at militarizing the ground of civil society. That means the whole of civil society is seen as being locked in a war. War with the dangerous other, etc. etc. Right? Military virtues are constantly proclaimed as the most valuable ones. As I said, history is seen as a long story of embattled communities. It is basically a doctrine which seeks to suffuse the whole of society with an atmosphere of constant conflict. It's in short, it's a doctrine of prolonging and rendering continuous the whole atmosphere of warfare inside society at large. So in short, the war and brutality is not something that happens only on the boundaries or the frontiers of the particular country. It's something that retreats inwards. Today, if you go, if you take a taxi in Ahmedabad and you pass by a Muslim uh, uh, area, then it's probably the most, the, the taxi driver will tell you we are passing by mini Pakistan. The same kind of language you'll find in many places. Uh, people will talk like this, you know. 
mind you when the muslim league was agitating for pakistan way back in the 40s they would go out in parts of up and they would say the same thing in certain villages say we have already attained pakistan over here so this is all these different phenomena require us to sort of first appropriate all the phenomena apprehend them properly and then try to place them in some kind of theoretical uh, analysis and i my experience as a historian as well as a political politically active person is that it's very very difficult to pierce through ideological barriers to try to understand what is happening you know in india as i keep saying we we are not atheists we are hindu atheists and muslim atheists we are not communists we are muslim communists sikh communists hindu communists it's very deep uh, these divisions people simply see your name and they decide what caste you are what religion you belong to and they, you immediately get slotted you get placed in a slot as a result uh, conversation i have addressed meetings in in india also where i have said this uh, that you know hindus and muslims still don't know how to talk to one another or if they do there are very few of them who actually talk honestly to one another there are several layers in which you speak there are some things you talk openly about and some things you you prefer not to talk about etc etc so there these are these very deep fault lines now these fault lines need not necessarily lead to conflict they don't necessarily lead to you know nation states and fascistic movements but there's a link there is a link between christian antisemitism and nazism christian antisemitism is not equivalent to nazism but it is the provenance and 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 ideological resource it's a historical resource for an ideology of of antisemitism so we have to try to understand what these deep fault lines are in order to come to grips with what is happening in modern times so this is by way of placing these problems before you i'll go into some of the more uh, complex historical issues because i'm a historian and i would like you all to understand it historically as well now first let us let me just say that my approach is to understand reality as a kind of hybrid formation ideas institutions they are all hybridized they never exist in their pure form communalists and religious purists are all very interested in purification you know there will be movements to purify religions of extraneous influences See, Muslim communists will say, you know, that too much of this Hindu stuff is coming in here. We should clean it up. You should not say Khuda Hafiz. You should say Allah Hafiz. You know, all this goes on. These are all efforts by various intellectuals who appoint themselves leaders of this or that community to purify the doctrine. This has happened across the board. It happens. Hindu fanatics do it. Muslim fanatics do it. Sikh fanatics do it. I can give you very, very interesting examples. Also, uh, we'll go into that. Uh, but that is that shows that the 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 reality of people's existence is always hybrid. It's syncretic. Things are mixed. People are mixed. Localities are mixed in their population. People's practices and religious beliefs are mixed. This is never very pure. People have evolved their own ways. I mean, vast number. I mean, in, in 1971, as when it came to the Bangladesh war and the struggle in Bangladesh. the west pakistanis were saying these fellows are not even muslims their language is written in a script which is derived from devanagari the very script is hindu hindu you know the language is hindu uh, so it's got too much sanskrit in it they are all not half baked muslims etc etc all right 
So uh, this kind of obsession with purity uh, is something that indicates that reality against which the obsession is directed, the reality is hybridized. Now I would submit that everything is hybridized. You know, um, social reality, reality of thought, practices, even our physical environment. Suppose I were to tell you what is the ozone hole. Now ozone hole is just a fact of nature. Or is it something that has been produced by human intervention in nature? Okay, obviously it is a material fact, but it's a material fact that has been conditioned by human intervention. Okay, so it's not simply a material fact. You have to adopt a kind of social physics to understand certain material phenomena. Alright, so in that sense, for that matter, I am a student of labor history. I can tell you a very interesting story about the coal fires burning in Jharia. Jharia is a famous coal mining town in India. There's a fire burning underneath it for 80 years. Now that again is not a, it seems as if it's a natural phenomenon, but it's not. It's a man-made phenomenon. Alright. So, then my first point is that ideologies also function like this. And religious beliefs and practices also occur in hybridized form, in syncretic form. And that's the reality uh, in Indian history also for a long time. Even before the advent of modern nation states, etc., people were living and uh, collaborating and coexisting and, of course, fighting and conflicting with one another, but without that kind of obsession with purification that we find is taking place now. All right? So, one thing to see is when I'm, since I'm addressing the question of extremisms, is that extremism is a doctrine or an approach which is obsessed with purification and simplification. Okay? So, it takes an extreme position about various ideas and doctrines and seeks to impose that. So it's a, it's, a, it's a doctrine or an approach which aims at a compulsory unification of ideas. You wish people to think in the same way. You know, Kundera has a very, very nice line on this. Some people define and others succumb to the definition. It's a battle over language. You'll see it all the time. People are always telling you, you know, and one very, very Im important phenomenon in communal language is that their focus is on how women particularly behave and comport themselves. What women should wear, how they should behave, whom they should love or not love, in what circumstances they may take their independent posture in life, etc., etc. This is an obsession with all communities. Even now in India, you find this, uh, this obsession with gender and sexual relations is a very, very powerful ingredient of communal politics. Recently, the BJP and its, uh, its backer, I mean, the parent organization of the BJP is something called the RSS, Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh. And they have been conducting a campaign, what they, uh, campaign, what they call Love Jihad. They, so there's suddenly been a big campaign around uh, Muslim boys trying to inveigle Hindu girls into amorous relationships, then marry them, convert them and produce Muslim children, etc, etc. So this is a, and mind you certain Christian organizations in Kerala also began this thing about how Muslims are uh, stealing our women. So it's very interesting, if, if you go into the figures you'll see that it falls more or less equally on all sides. There are Muslim girls marrying Hindu boys and Christian boys and it's, uh, there are Hindu and Christian girls marrying, marrying Muslim boys. It, it happens, you know, and a lot of these are, and you, there are lots of stories about these people also, how they're running from pillar to post to escape from their parents. It's quite funny and also in many cases quite tragic. In fact, there's a group there's a very nice group of, uh, of, of uh, very decent-minded people and they're Punjabi men, by the way. 
who set themselves up in Delhi as a group called the Love Commandos. And they've given their phone number out and mobile phones and all and said anybody who's in love, lovers who are being chased because of wrong community, wrong caste, etc. come to us, we'll look after you. And they've done it in many cases. But on the other hand, there have been very tragic incidents in which people have been killed for marrying across the caste. The latest killing is across caste. It hasn't even got to do with religion. Two people of a different caste got married and the parents killed them. You know? So, uh, it, but if you look into it in greater detail, something very interesting emerges. They object, Muslim communists object if a Muslim girl marries a Hindu or a Christian boy. Not vice versa. If a Muslim boy marries a, a Hindu or Christian girl, then it's a conquest. Similarly, a Hindu, Hindu communists object if Hindu girls fall in love with a Muslim. They don't object if a, if a Muslim girl falls in love with a, Muslim, a Hindu boy. There's no objection. Okay. So it's still a battle of male supremacy. We are conquering uh, the other community by inveigling their women and so on and so forth. So you'll see this, the subterranean logic is that of sovereignty, virility, ownership, pro 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 property, etc, etc. Asserting, asserting your control over, over the other community. But on one level it's facile, uh, on the other level it also indicates to us what is going on in society about these, these fault lines, etc. So that's one thing I wanted to talk about, the hybrid nature of social existence and the, and the obsession with purity in the minds of those who wish to cast society in a certain mode. How does this all link up with our history? And that's why I've often said that we cannot understand what is happening in our, country, our part of the world if we exclude those areas which then later on came to be known as Pakistan, Bangladesh, etc. In, in short, what I'm saying, without a holistic approach, we will not understand what is happening in India. Without a holistic approach in Pakistan, you cannot understand what's happening in Pakistan. All right. So even Kashmir, it's a, it's a burning problem all the time. But you can't understand it in isolation by just saying, oh, uh, the Indian state is uh, wrecking havoc over there, there are human rights violations, which there are undoubtedly. Uh, but you can't understand it simply in those terms. So what, uh, what more do we need to put on the table to try to comprehend these things? I, I can only try to sum it up very briefly. Um, but let me start by saying this. It's got to do with the concept of the nation state the concept, the practice of the nation-state. And it's got to do with the concept of self-determination and the complications and complexities of this concept. Now, at first sight, everybody says, yes, self-determination is a very good thing. I suppose you know that this, this uh, political concept basically appeared around the time of the First World War. Those of you who are historians who have some knowledge of history, we should know that it's a concept introduced into international politics by Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson himself had borrowed it from the Russian Social Democrats. Russian, the Russian Socialist Movement, Communist Movement is a movement which placed a lot of stress on self-determination. Why? Because as Lenin used to refer to the Tsarist Empire as a prison of nationalities. So the people who were oppressed, the nationalities that were oppressed by the Tsarist system were allies, natural allies of the Bolshevik movement. Those are all details of the Russian Revolution. People who are familiar with Russian history will know how important it was for the Bolsheviks to make an appeal to the people who call themselves subject nationalities and so on and so forth. 
There was even a Jewish organization called the Jewish Bund, which was part of the social democratic movement. They were part and parcel of it. Trotsky used to be a member of the Jewish Bund before he separated himself from it. So it's a complex of, uh, of movements which were opposed to the Tsarist system and many of those were opposed to the system on ground of oppressed, of oppressed nationalities and so on. But anyway, be that as it may, um, Woodrow Wilson then introduced this concept at the time when the World War ended and when the Treaty of Versailles was about to be signed, you know, there was a big Paris Peace Conference which took place over many months. And the Paris Peace Conference had to deal with a very, very important, immediate political fact. And that was the fact that four multinational empires had been disestablished on because of the First World War. Now, try to think about it. I mean, you are, have, are, are active and thinking people at the time when the Soviet Union collapsed. Okay. It's a really big deal for the Soviet Union to have, been, to have collapsed. I mean, I taught Soviet history for many, many years and I remember in 1980 when the Polish workers movement began telling my students that this is the beginning of the end. Uh, I didn't guess that it would be end in less than a decade. I thought it would take more than that. But as a historian, I could say that this is it's going to lead to many consequences. But the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, in 1989 actually, when the Berlin Wall came down and thereafter it rapidly disappeared. So you can imagine a situation in which four multinational empires all collapse at once. This is what happened after the First World War. The Tsarist, the Hohenzollern, the Ottoman and the Habsburg. These are all multinational empires. If you add the Chinese to it, which collapsed in 1911, so the five. So, whatever one might say about these empires, one thing was very clear. They were not nation states. They were not homogenous. They were not based on a concept of a homogenous nation. They were multinational. They had to deal with and confront and engage with the issue of collective living. One way or the other. The minute they began a campaign of, of uh, purification and nationalization, that itself was a sign that they were disintegrating. Like in Russia, uh, the Tsarist system in its declining years began a campaign that was known as Russification. Now, Russification uh, was a move towards a, a homogenized, uh, homogenizing tendency. Okay? Uh, and that itself signaled the weakness of the empire because before that there was no uh, there was no insistence on russification okay anyway so what i am saying is that what took place immediately after the first world war was nothing short of a political tsunami it was unprecedented and these were empires that had lasted for centuries the holy roman empire had become the habsburg empire tsarist empire goes back to many centuries so does the hohenzollern so does the ottoman they all disappeared and the Ottoman Empire extended over Arabia, what is today called Syria and Palestine and Lebanon and Iraq. All this was part of the Ottoman Empire. They all disappeared. Now what happened was that the great powers had to reassemble this. They suddenly had the huge task of creating a new world order. And the new world order had to be constructed around a certain principle. And the principle that was invoked was the principle of self-determination. Now. Uh, I think that this is one of the gravest political uh, disasters in history, the idea of a, of a nation state. Um, this is a very controversial uh, statement, but this is what I believe. And, and because it is based on the idea and the ideal 
of a homogeneous nation living in a space. It marries the concept of ethnicity to the concept of territory. Territory in marriage with ethnicity. The assumption being that people actually live in spaces which can be clearly demarcated and those demarcated spaces then can then be given a certain sovereignty and they will have self-rule. Sovereignty. So state power is tied together to a concept of nationalism. This is very momentous development politically. Because as I said, people don't live like that. It's not that people are all, all Frenchmen living over here and all Germans living over there. No, there were many Germans living in Poland. There were many Poles living in Germany. There were many Italians living in Switzerland. There were many French people living in Germany. It's all mixed up. I mean, the area known as Alsace-Lorraine, even today, you see, uh, it's mixed up. I mean, people speak both German and French. In Italy, people speak five different languages. Uh, sorry, in Switzerland. All right. All the more in those days when there was no clear-cut demarcation, there were people who really had their roots in several different cultures. Right. So, demographic, the, demogra the demography of, of population, I mean, the, the political demography was such that it did not, uh, it was not coterminous with ethnic demography. Okay. Um, but suddenly you have this new concept saying that nations must have homes. Suddenly in 1919, 60 million Europeans got up one morning to find that they had been given a national home. And 25 million were told, you are a minority. They were living in the same place. They had not changed their location. They were the same people speaking the same language, living in the same place, professing the same faith. But yesterday they were part of that nation and today they were told they are minority. My argument is that the whole language of majority and minority is a fabrication. It's an ideological and political fabrication. It's a doctrine. It's not. A, it doesn't reflect a, rea it's a reality. Okay, and it was imposed as a state system by the international order. The League of Nations underwrote it. It became an accepted doctrine. You know that states came into existence. Czechoslovakia. Right. Actually, they couldn't even adhere to this doctrine of, of a nation state. This, in some cases, they forced together nations which didn't want to be part of one nation state. So Czechoslovakia was never a nation state, although it purported to be so. Later on, we find what the, the Slovaks don't want to live with the Czechs, the Czechs don't want to live with the Slovaks. They don't mind together living in the European Union, but they don't want to live with each other. All right? Same thing happened in Yugoslavia. It's a completely artificial country that was made in 1918. All right? this, then subsequently, we discovered that Serbs and Croats hate each other. All right? So the, the century began over Sarajevo. And it ended with, a, I mean, it began with the Serbs trying to reach the port on the Adriatic. And it ended with the Serbs still trying to reach a port on the Adriatic. What was going on in the Balkan Wars in 1913-14, suddenly you find at the end of the century, what is, what is happening? Lo and behold, the Serbs are trying to reach the Adriatic. It's very interesting and tragic, despite several modes of production, revolution, communism, socialism, and imperial. But the Serbs are still hell-bent on, you know, making a nation-state of their own, right? That's why they shot uh, the Archduke and started the First World War. So, in short, we have an artificial order based on a principle, a doctrine of nation-state, okay? And this nation, the concept of the nation-state hinges around this concept of a homogeneous entity, homogeneity. So, minorities are those, it's a circular argument, minorities are those who don't share the characteristics of the majority. The majority is, is, are those who are not the minority. 
Alright? And so uh, everybody who doesn't who doesn't share the exact characteristics of the majority, they, they become a minority. Now, as far as the whole doctrine of nationalism is concerned, for the nationalists, the, across the spectrum, minorities are a problem. They come with a question mark. Even in political language, they are referred to as a problem. For the liberal nationalists, minorities have to be looked after and dealt with carefully and they have to be, their rights have to be guaranteed. And across the spectrum, at the extreme end of the spectrum, you have people who say they should be thrashed regularly or they should be sent to the gas chamber. But they are a problem. So we now construct people who were living in the same place as a problem. Now what does this lead to? I see that the nation state is like a glorified ghetto. Remember that the whole effort of the German imperialism and Nazism to throw out all the Jews actually succeeded. We are living in a ghettoified world. European Jews have been cleansed from Europe by a vicious process of genocide, intimidation, hatred, etc., etc., part of which the Catholic Church has a lot to do with. They have been cleansed. So they are now shoved into a ghetto. Now, if I say I am opposed to your living in a ghetto, I'll be, oh, you are against Jews. No, I am not against Jews. In fact, I stand for their rights. I just don't believe they should be forced to live in a ghetto. They should be free to live any any part of the world. So you see what the problem is with this doctrine. Now this doctrine then became a part and parcel of nationalist movements all over the world. And since in my part of the world, in South Asia, nationalist movements, anti-imperialist movements were arising, they got colored by this doctrine of the nation state. India was fighting to be a nation state, a sovereign nation state. Suddenly in, into this whole movement, there appeared the doctrine of nationalism. And this nationalism then came to be colored and per rendered perverse by communal ideas. So who is the nation? Now, people across the religious spectrum, from Gandhi to Maulana Azad to Abdul Ghaffar Khan to Baba Kharak Singh, they would all say all Indians are, everybody who lives here is an Indian. And the nation belongs to all of us, to everybody. Even the Deoband school of clerics was saying, yeah, India belongs, from the national point of view, the whole of India belongs to all the people who live in India. So it's a kind of composite or cosmopolitan idea of national, inclusive idea of national. Now, I have, a, I have a big problem with the idea of nationalism as it is, but if one has to choose nationalism and there is something to be said for it, then one should go for an inclusive and cosmopolitan idea of nationalism rather than an exclusive one. On the other hand, there is the exclusive idea of nationalism which says, uh, no, India belongs to Hindus because this is the sacred land of the Hindus. This is the doctrine of the RSS. The whole tendency of Hindu nationalism, which has got deep roots, it goes back into the 19th century. The doctrine is that India is the sacred land, Punya Bhumi, okay, and only for Hindus. Everybody else is a minority. And people who owe allegiance to ideas and ideologies and religions that are located, whose holy places are located outside this area, they are basically should live here on sufferance. They are the minorities. So in short, it's a philosophy of number. Communism, to put, the, to put it in modern, there's a, there's a famous Indian nationalist called Chaudhary Mohammedan who was a collaborator with, uh, with Mahatma Gandhi during the Khilafat movement. 
in their debates, he, he, used, he used this very interesting phrase, which I learned from one of your teachers, Shabnam Tajani. I, didn't, I hadn't heard of it before. The philosophy of communism is a philosophy of number. You're counting. Now, the thing about counting is that it's simply an arithmetical exercise. The, the whole deal is arises from what you're counting. What are you counting? You can count city dwellers as opposed to village dwellers. You can count young people. Uh, as opposed to old people, you can count women as opposed to women, you can count anything you like. But in India, we are always counting Hindus and Muslims. That's what we count. Okay, so uh, this philosophy of number entered into national. And it got tied up with the whole international order which was talking about nation states. And so Indian nationalism has a constant running tension. It's, as I said, things are hybridized. So it's not as if this tension has been resolved. It's a constant battle. Okay? But it's, and it's still going on. Even in the, this election that has taken place this year, in Narendra Modi's campaign, in the RSS campaign, the whole thing was the partition of India. The partition of India was caused by Muslims. The partition of India led to a homeland for, for Muslims. Therefore, the Congress is to blame for the partition. Muslims are to blame for the partition. Therefore, what remains of India ought to belong to Hindus and Hindus alone. So this is a subtext. Sometimes it's spoken very explicitly. Sometimes it's spoken diplomatically. At the high level, you'll, you'll find it's spoken diplomatically. <coughs> On the streets, it's fairly clear. You know, you got your nation. Now you stop making a noise in the air. That's the way that people articulate. You know, one might argue from the other side that Muslims who live in India are Muslims who chose to live in India. They didn't choose to go to Pakistan. Therefore, India belongs as much to them as to anybody else. But this is the nature of the conflict. Okay, and, and, and in, in many cases, it's impossible to resolve it by a reasonable dialogue. This is the problem. People just assume they know where exactly your political positions are by knowing your religion and so on. So, self-determination, therefore, caused a big crisis. The very doctrine of self the, the doctrine that all of us think that we should automatically approve of. I would like to place a big question mark on this. Simply logically. Now let us look at it, having looked at this, this historical background, let me just pose it to you, the logical problem. The logical problem of self-determination is that the person making the demand presumes he or she already knows the self in whose name the determination is to be exercised. When I say I want self-determination for X people, it means I already know that that's an entity called XYZ and I want self-determination for them. But do they agree with this idea of the self? So who is the self in self-determination? It means that you have already determined the boundaries of the self before you have articulated the demand. It's very clear. Who are you demanding self-determination? So I'll, I'll give an example. We want self-determination for Kashmiris. Now mind you, whatever I'm saying by no means precludes an acceptance of the fact that there have been terrible atrocities and human rights violations committed by the Indian state and police and military in Kashmir Valley. It's true. There's no question. Okay. But what I'm also saying, what I'm next about to say is also true. Which is, if I say self-determination for Kashmir, the immediate question arises as to who is it in Kashmir who wants self-determination? 
there are many people who don't want it people of the valley are focused on self determination people who live around the valley don't see kashmiri the kashmiri valley kashmir valley is just slightly less than half of the total population of jnk it's not the majority it's, it's almost half but the people who live in this area surrounding the valley and many of them are muslims mind you they call themselves staunch hindustanis they are bakarwals and gojars and so on and the nomadic people they don't speak kashmiri in fact they look down upon the by the kashmiri uh, uh, by the inhabitants of kashmir valley and i'm sure many people who are open minded about this to recognize these distinctions will know i'm not speaking with any kind of animus for anybody i'm just speaking as what i have heard and what i have heard from kashmiris themselves right so as a result the people of ladakh there are many buddhists there there are many shias there they don't have the same approach to self determination as the people of valley right so what we have is a situation in which some people want self determination because they are very clear what the self is but when you actually examine what that self is in whose name the self determination is being demanded you find that disintegrates uh, there are hindus who are living in, who, are, who are part of jammu there are dogras so there are dogras there are shias there are gojars and there are bakarwals and uh, they are not all in agreement about the question of self determination secondly when the whole question of self determination of kashmir is placed on the table or was first placed on the table the choice was whether people would join pakistan or hindustan that is the only choice today there will be a debate about this whether there should be two or three choices on the ballot paper suppose there were a plebiscite suppose everybody agreed yeah we should give it to the right of the the people should decide where they want to go there will immediately be a big row as to the number of choices to be mentioned on the paper should there be two choices or three you won't have any agreement i'm just telling you so therefore all i'm saying is that the concept of self determination is a logical problem it presumes we know the self in whose name we are making the demand when actually in many cases we don't know that self secondly as i said to use kundera's phrase again some people define and other people accept succumb to the definition so it's a matter of some people defining the nation right like some people say the india is a hindu nation now they go and say everybody in india is a hindu so this is your language i remember see this is the kind of uh, propaganda that youngsters are brought up on i remember when i was a teacher in delhi university and i was a student at the, uh, when i was teaching at the time of this babri masjid agitation you know you know babri masjid was demolished in 1992 a lot of youngsters were very affected by this campaign and they've been fed a certain line and the line and the doctrine is everybody who lives across the sindhu river mind you many of them who live across the sindhu river are now in pakistan they are pakistanis but the doctrine of the rss is that hindu means everybody who lives this side of the sindhu meaning the indus those who live this side of the sindhu are hindus and indeed this is the the word hindu was given to people in india hindus don't call themselves hindus they never used to all right they've been given this name by people who came from outside all right so this is the definition adopted by the hindu nations hindu means everyone who lives this side of the sindhu so i remember one of these youngsters approached me and said sir uh, but you see everybody who lives this side of the sindhu is a hindu i said all right if it pleases you to call me a hindu you know my name 
if it pleases you to call me a Hindu, fine, do that. I'm not bothered. I said the crux, the problem will arise when I refuse your name. You choose to give me a name. It makes you happy, fine. I'm happy that you're happy. We're all happy. But when I say no, I don't accept it. I don't want to be given this name. Then the issue arises as to whether you will seek to convince me by words or you'll beat me. Are you going to use violence or are you going to convince me by dialogue that I should call myself in? This is the only problem. There's no other problem. Then of course the debate stopped there because you know he couldn't face this. But the, the, the reason I'm placing this here on the table is that basically the whole philosophy, this whole doctrine is grounded in violence and intimidation. In short, the communal project cannot work unless there is violence and intimidation. If it is simply a matter of calling one another, uh, attaching certain names and labels to one another, then it's fine. Even the question of caste and caste oppression, people now take great objection to being called certain names. All right? in, uh, in, in caste language, today if you refer to a person as a bhangi or a chamar, you can be taken to court. All right? Now uh, on ground of insulting someone, whereas once upon a time these names, they were just names of certain castes. Of course, they were the names of castes who were oppressed, they were socially oppressed and sometimes they were used, these names were used in a, in a contemptible manner. All right. However, the fact is that if it were not accompanied by violence and intimidation and humiliation, the name itself would mean nothing. You want to consider me low caste, fine. So I consider you a lowly human being also. That doesn't, it, it, it hardly matters. It matters only because it is accompanied by real corporal punishment and real corporal oppression. All right. If some men consider themselves to be superior to women, it's fine, they feel like, they feel that that's fine, we can also consider them inferior beings. It's only because male chauvinism or what you call patriarchy is actually accompanied by real intimidation and physical violence. That's what makes it deadly and that's what makes it objectionable. Otherwise, there's nothing we can do if people adopt certain postures. Alright, so that's why I'm stressing this aspect of it, how all this communal ideology is rooted in violence and intimidation. Alright, so let me try to define what, what and keep using the word communal ideology. What does it mean? It's very simple. It means it's an assumption that because we all belong to a particular community, therefore we share political interests. That political interests arise from and devolve around a shared, uh, shared community identity. In short, if I am the same religion as you, I must have the same political interests. If I am of a different religion from you, then we must have opposing political interests. This I am submit is a fabrication. It's just not true. Muslims are divided by caste, by region, by language, by class position. So are Hindus, so are Sikhs and people are divided into along many lines and they are not simply unified because they belong to a particular community. Even in community terms, they are not unified because within the community there are many, many divisions of different people who, you know, who all call themselves Muslims but who believe completely different things. It doesn't follow. The only circumstance in which communal identity leads to a reality is if I am really under physical threat because of my appearance. 
1993, I could not travel from Surat to Delhi because there was a communal atmosphere and my friends told me, you've got a beard, you'll get killed or you'll be physically attacked. In that situation, it would be pointless for me to say, no, no, I am not a Muslim. Uh, uh, you know, my name is Simeon. They, they, they couldn't give a damn. You've got to be, you know, Sardarjis get attacked for looking like Osama Bin Laden. Nobody's interested. So if your mere appearance sparks off animus, if your name sparks off animus, then you are force, forcibly put into a certain enclave of belonging to a particular community. So communal identity and communal politics is based on fear. Without that, it can't succeed. Therefore, it becomes important for communal politics to constantly create an atmospherics of fear and to do it in real practice. It's happened under our noses. It's still happening. In the, in, in, in the latest elections in, in India, even in the provincial elections, you found that there was a deliberate attempt to stoke up communal hatred. And it's happening in Delhi even as we speak. An election is coming up in Delhi and in the slum areas, communal riots have started. They are using social networks, Facebook, this and that to start common rights, spread a rumor, oh, the head of a cow has been found in front of this place. That So there is an immediate atmosphere. A few people are killed. There is some rioting takes place. Low-grade communal activism takes place in various areas. The atmosphere is vitiated. People start hating each other. They forget about their other differences and they focus on the enemy. This lasts sufficient for sufficient long duration for you to win the election and then you go back to square one. It happened last year, in this year, in, uh, 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 2013 in Muzaffarnagar, in parts of UP. So now you have a phenomenon of ghettoification and ethnic cleansing going on at a low grade, but which is sufficient to create a political atmosphere in which communal parties can exact their political price or their political victories. Okay. At the end of the day, it's not thousands who have been displaced and ethnically cleansed, but Thousands are displaced, maybe 50, 60, 70 people are killed. But it's enough to create the atmosphere. Okay, so as I said, this is, these are the various outcomes of our communal politics. And the same thing has happened in, in Kashmir, let me tell you. In Kashmir, um, in 1989 to 1991, something like 300,000 Hindus who spoke Kashmiri and who were Kashmiri in everything but the religion. They were not Muslims, but they were Kashmiri. They were subject to a campaign of intimidation and violence and uh, they were forced to leave. Many of them are now living in refugee camps in, in Jammu and the atmosphere in the whole country has been vitiated because nobody does anything for them anyway. The people who talk on behalf of Hindus are not really doing anything to, to take them back there. But they're living in refugee camps and the whole atmosphere has been vitiated. Okay, so these are just examples to show how we are still living through all this. It's not something in the past, it's happened, it's, it, it keeps on happening. Okay, so the point I'm making is that we have certain unquenched ideological projects. And the ideological project is driven by extreme extremist forces in whose opinion Indian independence is incomplete until their ideology comes to power. This is the case with the BJP and the RSS which has come to power now and the, and the RSS has already begun behaving as if um, 
their ideological project has now been vindicated. Right? Now, many people have come to the conclusion that it's all over. India has become a Hindu Rasht, which is what the Hindu nationalists always wanted. And recently I gave a talk in, in Wolfson College in Oxford and I was surprised. I've been accused of many things in my life, but this was the most unique. I was accused of being the best spokesman for Hindu nationalism. I find it very funny uh, and I was quite flattered to receive this accolade. But the fact is that the reason he, this person who said this, uh, he was arguing from the standpoint of Sikh nationalism. And he said, yes, I have read the piece that you have written on 1984, because I, as I told you, I have written a piece on 1984 talking about uh, uh, the, uh, the, the humiliation and violence that, was, that the Sikh community in Delhi was, uh, was subjected to. But for him, I was an apologist for the Indian uh, government and the Indian state. Because I was still arguing in terms of fighting for human rights, how these kind of doctrines have to be defeated and confronted and engaged with, etc. He was saying basically it's all over. So if you are talking of Indian constitution, etc., etc., you're just an apologist for the status quo. It's finished. Right? I said the Sikh communists are in alliance with the Hindu communists in the government. The Akali Dal is, a, is an alliance partner. So what are you talking about? None of it would wash with him. The fact is that India was already a, in, like a Hindu Rashtra and there was nothing left to be said. So the brunt of it all was that we were going nowhere because all that he was saying was saying we are faced with gloom, gloom and doom was the brunt of the story. There's nothing to be said. Whereas I keep trying to point out to my friends and critics that I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a Hindu nationalist, I'm a constitutional patriot. The Indian constitution contains something which is positive. The law is not communal. There is no separate electorates for people on ground of religion or caste. Okay, there is nothing in law which prevents uh, a Muslim or a Parsi or a Sikh from becoming the prime minister or the president. In fact, a Sikh has just been the prime minister for ten years, all right? And numerous Muslims have been presidents. So there is not the constitution is not a is not a communal constitution. Secondly, Hanuman is not sitting in the constitution. Allah is sitting in the Pakistani constitution and in the, in the, in the Bangladeshi constitution under the objective resolution of, uh, which goes back to 1950. Uh, sovereignty belongs to Allah. Now, as was pointed out in the Pakistan Constituent Assembly as long ago as 1949-50, sovereignty in a democracy belongs to the people, not to God. Okay. The trouble with ascribing sovereignty to Allah is that Allah himself doesn't make his presence felt. Someone interprets his will. It's always a matter of interpretation. You know, uh, there's always someone who is supposed to represent the will of God. I mean, Advani wants to build a Ram temple. I mean, does he have a direct link to Ram? I mean, George Bush's uh, cabinet was known to have a direct link to Jesus Christ. But, uh, you know, that's the way they talk. You know, God wills it. How do you know God's will? I, I say so. This is the crux of authoritarian politics. Everybody who tries to gain some legitimacy and leverage from Allah, God and the, and the Divine Almighty actually is saying, I am the valid and legitimate interpreter of God's will. That's what they're saying. It all comes back to human beings. All right. There is God the Father and there is the Little Father. This used to be the case in the Tsarist Empire. 
the people of Russia also used to say, there is God the Father and there is a little father and the little father is the Tsar. And what the Tsar says is God divine providence. This is the problem. Everybody across the spectrum, without exception, every different tendency and even Buddhists now in our part of the world have produced fascists. There are Buddhist monks in a religion devoted to non-violence, there are Buddhist monks who have incited violence both in Sri Lanka and in Burma. Alright, so this is the problem with the theory of legitimacy that grounds itself on something like this. Now I am saying the Indian constitution thus far does not have Hanuman and Krishna and Ram sitting in the constitution. Therefore one should fight for it. As I keep telling my Maoist friends, we don't need a violent revolution to overthrow the constitution. We need a non-violent revolution to defend the constitution. You've got the whole thing all wrong. Okay. Now, um, I won't take too much more time because I know we have time for discussion and I, sh I, I would like to give time for that. Mm -hmm. I'd like to refer to some of the, the philosophical issues connected to all this and then I'll stop. See, I see us as living, I, I see this traditional divisions between left and right and so on as not very helpful any longer. Why are they not helpful? Because there are, there are a great many slippages between the two camps. As I said, things are hybrid. People who know Indian history will be hard put to it to define as to which camp Subhash Chandra Bose belonged to. There are elephants in the drawing room right in front of us. We, we, we just have to open our eyes. Was Subhash Chandra Bose a fascist? Was he a communist? What was he? He is very popular with the whole spectrum. Everybody says what a great man Subhash Chandra Bose. He allied himself with the Nazis in the Second World War. People never fail to keep shooting at, uh, at Gandhi on the shoulders of Bose, shoulders of Jinnah, on the shoulders of Ambedkar. But nobody considers that this Subhash Chandra Bose actually, he asked his followers to swear an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler. This is the oath of allegiance taken by the Indian Foreign Legion, okay, in 1941. They were prisoners of war, taken prisoner by the Germans and then the Germans handed them over to the command of Subhash Bose. Uh, and many of them, uh, they, once they joined the Indian Foreign Legion, which later on became the Indian National Army, they took an oath of allegiance to Adolf Hitler as a supreme leader, right? So, but what was he? He himself had utter contempt for parliamentary democracy. And he is on record as having said certain things about in, in his books as a mixture of the best aspects of fascism and communism and so on. Now, he was never a communist. One must give the person his due. He never had any communal biases and prejudices about Muslims and so on, nothing like that. It's it's likely that if he had remained in a leadership position, there would he would not he would not have allowed communal ideas to grow. But there, on the other hand, is a strong tendencies towards militarism and dictatorship and authoritarianism. Okay, he was attracted to that part in the in the in the spectrum of world politics in the in the late 1930s and the 1940s. Bush was on that side of the axis. He was one of the few colonial leaders who regretted the collapse of the Axis powers rather than celebrate the victory of the Allies. Okay, so I don't want to go into all the details there. Apart from it's a short aside, I can tell you is that as late as as recently as last year, a request on the Indian Parliament on the floor of the House for the release of all the files uh, concerning Subhash Chandra Bose was refused by the Manmohan Singh government on the ground that it, was it would cause law and order problems all over the country and especially in Bengal. This is on record. That means, you know, 
70, 80 years after the events, we are not going to release the files and boast because people will start rioting. God knows what's in those files. I have a shrewd guess, but I better not put it since you're recording my speech. Okay. So the fact is that it's difficult to place this person ideologically. That's all I'm saying. I am resistant to the idea that left and right can tell us much because there's a ground shared by enemies and that ground is the ground of militarism. That ground is the ground of, you know, celebrating warfare, the concept of martyrdom. These are things that are shared by the by the extreme ends of the spectrum. Now I'm just going to say a few words about the Maoist movement of which I myself was a part. In the Maoist movement also, people see it as just another one, the extreme, end, extreme edge of Indian communist movement. Actually, it's not that. It's much more than that. The Maoist movement in India has its roots in, um, in the Indian nationalist terrorist movement of the 1910s. Those of you who are familiar with Indian history may have heard of terrorist groups known as the Onushilon, Jugantar and so on. These were the terrorist groups in Bengal which are agitating against the partition of Bengal from 1907 onwards. Okay, it's very interesting, but they were very, they were, they drew their support from the upper caste youth, highly educated, highly literate and upper caste and privileged youth. And they were small groups of terrorists. And the word terrorism was not considered to be an abuse or pejorative in those days. It was considered to be a great thing to be a terrorist. And uh, they were committed to taking violent action against the British officials. And they were doing it and they became really dreaded groups and they're still celebrated in Indian and in, in Bollywood films. Re even recently there have been films made on Shurjo Sen and so on. The Chittagong Armory Raid of 1930, this is a famous event. These are, this is the Indian terrorist tradition and nothing to do with leftism and communism and socialism. They were staunch ultra-nationalists. After the Russian Revolution, the nationalist movement became suffused and influenced by left-wing ideas as well. So you find a kind of admixture. You find a mixture of ideas stemming from the early terrorists and the early terrorists drew their ethical inspirations from religion. Some of them were using the Bhagavad Gita as the source of ethical inspiration to, to produce a theory of just war. You've all heard of the just war theory. How in certain circumstances even God will permit us to kill because it's just. So the doctrine of just war was derived by the Indian nationalist terrorists from the Bhagavad Gita to show how even Krishna was encouraging Arjuna to go and do his duty and kill the enemies. So therefore we have to do it. Right? So this is the tradition which later on got affected by, by left-wing nationalism. So you find an osmosis of ideas, again a hybridization of ideas, wherein some sections of the terrorists became influenced by communism. Some of them even joined the communist party and others remained on the path of revolutionary terrorism without bothering about communism. This carried on right through. Even in the 1940s, there were people who were crossing sides. There were people who were imprisoned in Kalapani. Kalapani is the, you know, the, the jails in the Andamans. And who were becoming convinced of communism, having been jailed for being terrorists. And they were reading communist literature. And incidentally, there are some reports that after the British, you know, in 1941, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, the communist movement all over the world switched its position from attacking the war as an imperialist war, to supporting the war effort of the Allies because now the Soviet Union was clearly ranged on one side. So the entire left-wing and communist movement after 1941 became ranged on the side of the Allies. There is evidence that at that point in time, the British CID began, began allowing the influx or the smuggling in of left-wing literature into the Kalapani. 
and many people got convinced by this and began to use them. And there's a whole lot of very, very interesting data about this, it awaits more research. All I'm saying is that there is a ground which is shared by different factions, the different sides of the political divide and we ought to focus on that. My contention is that now we are living in an era which one can only characterize philosophically as a nihilist time of nihilism. When clear distinctions, political distinctions are being dissolved under our eyes. When uh, standards are disappearing, when people cannot converse with each other except in terms of throwing positions at one another. When there's more and more divisions in society between people on grounds of their religion or their identity. When ad hominem arguments, arguments are used incessantly to, to destroy your arguments. If I say I'm not listening to you because you're a Brahmin. You know, when we were young communists, we would say, tell opponents, oh, this is a petty bourgeois argument. I still see people who are respected academicians using book reviews and so on to say the writer of this book is he's got middle class prejudices. Aren't you middle class also? Your middle class, your middle class origin does not affect your judgment. So why should his middle class origin affect his judgment? Alright. Often I used to feel this, but you're saying all those guys are all petty bourgeois and middle class, but so are you. So on what grounds is your position correct and their position wrong? So when we, these are ad hominem arguments, I'm not engaging with your ideas. I'm looking at your face and making a decision based on what I perceive to be your identity. This is happening increasingly. Now, this has all got a lot of ramifications and I'll just sum it up. See, the point is whether we engage in conversation based on the content of the ideas and based on the sovereignty of reason or whether we believe in divine command. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem of reason versus revelation. The minute I have to make a decision between two prophets, see either I succumb to the prophet, I accept, whatever the prophet is at is correct, end of story. But the minute I make, I want to exercise my mind over two prophets or even two interpretations of the same prophet. When I say, all right, I'll think about it. You are now in a space other than the space denoted by the prophet. You are in some other space. You are saying, I am going to exercise my judgment. You are in a philosophical space. That's why position number three is the philosophical position because you, you are retreating from two sides of the binary and saying, I'll make up my own mind. Now, from where will you make up your mind? Where will you get the inspiration? You will exercise logos, you will exercise reason, you will exercise logic, whatever it is, you will engage in the human practice of thought. When you engage in the practice of thought, then you are engaged in a philosophical activity. So either you accept, either it's divine, now the era of divine commands has gone. It's very difficult to know what God really wishes. You know, in the old days when you could still blaspheme without being for, uh, being in fear of being attacked physically, even in the Bollywood songs, there was a, those of you who understand Hindi will remember this song. That means God is in his world and we are in the earth and nowadays he doesn't care for us much. 
हो रहा है लूट मार फट रहे हैं बम आसमान पे है खुदा और जमीन पे आम पीपल आर लूटिंग एंड किलिंग बॉम्ब आर गोइंग ऑफ बट गॉड डिशन Or for that matter, uh, Maulana Azad. Uh, all that whole tradition was saying that we in India have a, what they call Muttahida Komiyat. Muttahida Komiyat means mixed, uh, composite nationalism. Our nationalism is based is based on a mixture, syncretic, it's cosmopolitan. Okay, and what others were saying is that no, we have to purify it according to you know a religious identity, and that of course depends on who defines the religious identity. Right? Uh, there's a a famous Platonic dialogue between Socrates and Euthyphro. I think it's Euthyphro, in which Socrates asks Euthyphro, "So you think that piety is a good thing? Piety is holy?" He said, "Yeah. Do the gods love piety? Yes, the gods love piety. Do the gods love piety because it is holy?" or is it holy because the gods love it this is the philosophical crux of the whole debate about authoritarianism and democracy if something is right because the gods love it or the gods love it because it is right if the gods love it because it is right it means that there is a standard of rightness goodness and virtue which is superior even to the gods Now, in this case, it doesn't matter whether we are talking about the Abrahamic religions or the pagan religions. It doesn't matter whether we are talking about God as one or God as God or the gods. Okay, the fact is that either there is a standard of judgment which is superior even to the gods, and the gods recognize it and they say this is good, or whatever God says is good is good automatically. Okay, Hobbes has this famous line: "Auctaritas non veritas faxit legend." which means authority not truth determines right so if simply because i say it it becomes right then this is an argument for dictatorship and if the gods love it because it is right then that's a space for human dialogue so what we are now facing both in india and i think what i'm saying about india is equally relevant to this country or the rest of the world we are faced with the rise of all kinds of right wing fanaticisms all around but basically we are faced with the challenge of re establishing human conversation